Okay, uh, lots of good commotion here in the room. It's good. Let's uh, we'll bring you back in. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, let's try that again. Good morning, everybody. It is good to have you here today. Uh, thank you for taking some time on your Sunday and on your weekend to be with us. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here on this team as well. And it is good to have you here. And uh, just on behalf of our pastors, wow, that was such a neat blessing today. So thank you. We love, uh, we love getting to pastor you. So give yourselves a hand. You're pretty good people, all right? You weren't too sold on that. You don't like yourself? Like, what's going on? But uh, we're excited to, to have you here. And so let's jump in today. Um, in the 17th and the 18th century, uh, slavery was a rampant uh, part of Africa and Europe. In fact, uh, what was happening there would be in many ways appalling to what we see in our own culture today, but this was the story. Um, slave traders would come from Europe and they would go down to Africa and they would pull back the Africans and, and as a trade commodity, which is sad unto itself. Nonetheless, this is what was happening. Uh, John Newton was one of the people involved in this story. John Newton was a uh, slave trader. He was a captain of many ships that brought Africans into the continent of Europe. And uh, it was there where he had a lot of interactions. Now, if I were to then take you into Europe, though, in the small town of Clapham, which is a southwest district of London, there was another gentleman. His name was William Wilberforce. And uh, interesting how these two lives would suddenly uh, change the trajectory of a nation. I actually think that some of you are familiar with John Newton. I know you're like thinking, I didn't live in the 17th or 18th century. Uh, but, you know, I, I can, I, I relate to this because it was this guy who was the captain of these slave ships who encountered a shipwreck, and it was there on that boat where he penned words that I would probably admit that many of us have probably sung. Uh, a song that goes a little something like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do you know it? I once was lost. But now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Do you see how you're connected to John Newton today and this little moment? It was there on that boat when it was falling apart. He cried out to God, and guess what happened to John? He met Jesus. This slave trader encountered the living Christ. So much so it moved his life to then go become an Anglican priest in Europe. That's where he happened. It just so happened that in Clapham, out of London, William Wilberforce happened to meet John Newton one day, and William was a government dude. I mean, he did his thing, didn't know Jesus, but under his influence of what John Newton was now preaching, William Wilberforce submitted his life to Jesus as well. This once slave trader was now leading people to Jesus Christ. The amazing part of this story is that the two of them, as well as a series of other people, became abolitionists. They were called the Clapham Sect. It was a society. What they were looking to do was to abolish slavery, child labor, and prison reform. And guess what? They did it in Europe. Against a tide of a culture that wanted one thing, the Clapham Sect decided that they would become what Jesus asked them to be, influencers in their own community. 
And it was here where we begin to see that this creative minority, somebody say creative minority, this creative minority decided to stand and influence where it didn't make a whole lot of sense. A lot like our character who we are studying in our series, Daniel. Daniel and his friends have been exiled to Babylon. They are in a territory that they do not want to be a part of. And yet they as well, Daniel and his friends, formed a creative minority so that they could influence a kingdom that was far from God. And we're going to look at the scripture today. So I'm going to turn us to Daniel chapter, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and I'm going to read that for us today. This is them being taken into Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar said, Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Now turn to your neighbor and say, I think you would have made it to Babylon. You know, you're pretty good looking. I mean, this is good. Men and women, right? You would have made it. But he said this, make sure that these people, these men, make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning. They are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. It says train. Somebody say train. Train. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. And the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. And they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Those are our texts for today. So let's pray as we've read the word of the Lord together. Father, I ask you today to expose the lies that we listen to. We have clarity in Scripture that our enemy, the devil is the father of lies. And I believe that we've swallowed some of the pills he's given. So I ask that your truth today would be made known in this place because Jesus, you are truth. And I ask that you would teach us today so that we would turn more towards you and what you are asking of us. So give us um, eyes to see, ears to hear today, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name and everybody said. Come on, everybody said. Amen. This morning, I'd like to speak to us from the subject indoctrination. Aren't you excited? <laughs> Three years, right, is, is, is really not that long of a time frame. I think we would agree with this, yes? Uh, but we also know that three years is also a time in which you can be formed in a very unique way. Does anybody remember this thing called COVID? You remember that? A couple years, a couple of years period, because a lot of us, like, that, it felt like forever, yes? But it's like, it was really a short period of time. It's just making the point that even these short periods of time, they're very forming to us. But Daniel and his buds had to go to Babylon in exile for these three years. They had to go to school. It says that Daniel and his friends were trained. What was happening was King Nebuchadnezzar was taking them to Babylon University. They were going to get their education and they were going to be steeped in it in a very intriguing way. But it wasn't as it seems. One more time. This word train has got me thinking, and so our preach team kind of talked about a different word. Although these men were trained, I think the better word today was that they were indoctrinated to learn Babylon. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to look like Jews on the outside, but be Babylonian on the inside. And I think that that's true about us here in Canada today. Our leaders probably want us to look like Christians on the outside. I have a faith in Jesus outside. But guess what? They want you to look like Babylon on the inside with the things that are being taught and shared in our culture. 
The word indoctrination literally means this, to teach someone to fully accept the ideas, opinions, and beliefs of a particular group and to not consider other ideas, opinions, and beliefs. Some in this room, or maybe online today, you could argue that that's exactly what Christianity is. So what are you talking about today? Be fair to say, right? I mean, that's what you do. So, and I'm going to explain that a little bit as we continue. We understand this about our nation today. There is indoctrination happening everywhere. Culture is training you. It is indoctrinating you to believe to a certain set of system. And today we want to take a look at that. I love what Heather Grizzle says about this. Personal faith in our society is welcome. But expressing our convictions or espousing ideas as truth in public is uncouth at best, often taken as coercive, intolerant, or even life-threatening. You ever felt this tension in our nation? This is exactly what we're talking about today. So today I am pitching um, the idea that like Daniel, indoctrination is happening in our culture like he experienced in his. And I got to just say to the, us today, we got a problem, yes? We have a problem with what's happening. See, culture is silencing our faith and how we follow Jesus. So today I would like to expose four lies, four areas of indoctrination that I see in our culture. Obviously, it's not an exhaustive list, but nonetheless, we'll do our best. I want us to see that God is, is not above culture. God is not below culture. Guess where God is? Right within it. God is within the culture. And I want us to see today that God wants you, as a creative minority, to be used to bring influence to this world. In fact, the church, us, we are not competing with culture at all. We are not even combating it. For those of you who like to fight, get another idea. Because we're not combating the culture. What we are doing, as Jesus commands us to do, is to influence the culture. And so we want to move ourselves to that space with him. So I'm calling our church today to a thing called redemptive participation. This redemptive participation is going to demand from you your faithfulness to Jesus. And it's also going to look at your fruitfulness. How fruity are you, right? We're going to look at those things, but it is also ultimately given in this place of love. That we have to be a people who are marked with love. So like John Newton and William Wilberforce, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they created this thing called the creative minority. And today, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. How can you be a creative minority in this culture today? This term is not, is not my own. It is actually from a gentleman whose name was Arnold Tonnenby, and he was born in 1889. But I love this language because it's going to help us to learn how to engage the culture. But to do this today, I want to first start with Jesus. Anybody love Jesus here today? Because I think that we've got to start with Jesus. Now, Jesus had all these different groups around him in the culture in his day and age. First of all, he had the Romans. And the interesting part about the Romans is that they were blatant into paganism. They were actually powerful people, but Jesus had to wrestle with that. Then you had the Pharisees who really didn't like the Romans too much. They were a little bit of separatists. They were kind of like the cultural police, sometimes the spiritual police. We've, we've got the Pharisees. We also have the Sadducees. Now, they loved Rome. They, like, they, they loved what they were doing with Rome, and so what we would see is that the Sadducees, they wanted the power, the influence, and the control. The Essenes saw everything that was going around, and they are like, peace out, we're getting out of this culture. They ran to the desert. 
They kind of stuck their head in the sand and they lived the ways that they wanted. They had no interaction with culture. Then they had the zealots. And these guys were pretty intense as well. Like if you, if you came at the zealots, they'd come after you. You wanted to kill one of them, they're like, let's kill you. And they, they introduced this holy war. You had all of these different moving pieces that were happening in Jesus' time and in his culture. But then Jesus enters the scene. And guess what Jesus does? He offends and confounds every one of those strategies. He says that there is, there's going to be a different approach here today. And so what Jesus does is he takes 12 teenagers, of all people, 12 teenagers, and he creates a creative minority. He says, I want to use you to do this different. Culture is going to tell you how it's got to go, but I'm going to create a creative minority with a redemptive participation. The chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, Jonathan Sachs, says this about this creative minority. To become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith. Seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but to also transform the largest society of which you are a part of. And this is a demanding and a risk-laden choice. Catch that last line for a second. This is a demanding and risk-laden choice. To be a part of a creative minority that follows Jesus Christ in a culture that is screaming at you to do it every other way could be risky for you. So are you ready to go? I hope so. Because I think some of us, we hate risk. In fact, we like our comfortability of Babylon, but Jesus is looking for this creative minority. Last week, I had mentioned to us that we have to live in Babylon. Have to. But guess what? You don't have to do what it says. Amen? I mean, that's a good place for us to be. Now, I want to take this creative minority thing and give it one more definition, and it doesn't come from me. It comes from a speaker, author, uh, John Tyson. John Tyson, in his very powerful little book called Creative Minority, says this, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. Do you know stubborn people around you? But probably not the way that he's talking about right now, right? Don't put up your hands. Okay, that's good. But stubbornly loyal relationships, they're knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Amen. Like this is what this is about. John Tyson will also continue by making this one quote, and I'm going to use it today to springboard us over to the places of indoctrination that I was telling you about just moments ago. He said this, it has been my experience that the most effective discipling experience in the world is not the church. Are you encouraged with that statement? That's bold. The most effective discipling experience in the world is not the church, but the pervading culture. And and he asked the question, how exactly does the world shape us into its image? So great question, John Tyson. Let's take a look at it and see what it has to say about our culture today. Are you being discipled by the culture? Or are you being discipled by Jesus Christ? That becomes the question. So the first thing I see in our text today is that there was an indoctrination of gods and idols. See, Daniel and his friends were taught the ways of Babylon. In fact, learning and knowledge were necessities for them in order to stay in Babylon University. Not only did King Nebuchadnezzar confiscate the sacred objects to which we talked about last week, but he also took the shining lights of Judah's future. You know what King Nebuchadnezzar knew that the devil himself knows? If I can go get the young people, I'm going to win. 
and he takes the best of the best from Israel, and he wants to isolate them and teach them his ways. In Babylon at one time, historians will tell us that there were around a thousand temples in their city. That's a little excessive. But nonetheless, that's what was there. And guess what was attached to every single one of those temples? There was a library. It was a school. In fact, this temple and the education were side by side. They took this training and this development very, very seriously. Their leading god in the Babylonian city was Marduk. And Marduk had a, a, had a second name. His second name was shorthand, and it was Bel, B-E-L, and it meant Lord. This is interesting because we also read in a few verses later that Daniel, who had a good Jewish name, Israelite name, his name was changed when he came to Babylon through King Nebuchadnezzar. And guess what King Neb decided to call Daniel? Bel Teshazar. He put his own God as an identification on Daniel himself. His other friends were given names too, representing the different gods from Babylon. And we're going to talk about that in a couple more weeks. But what we see there in all of their God and their deities, there was probably around 3,600 deities in Babylon that day. Today in our world alone, there are estimated millions upon millions of gods from different cultures, races, and people. Here's the question. Maybe you've asked it before. What am I supposed to believe? Where do I land? Who's right in all this thing? Does everything actually lead to God? And that's where I want to get to that spot of indoctrination and why I believe that it is a lie that if we think many things are going to lead to God, and this is why I say that. God, the creator of the world, he saw our sin and our separation. He saw that we were wounded as a people. What does he decide to do? He decides to send his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ comes to this earth he, he pays the penalty for our sins. He dies a brutal death on a cross. He gets placed into a tomb. The good news about Jesus is he didn't stay in the tomb. He got back up. He resurrected, and he is alive today is what we believe. See, this whole thing that we do today, us coming here and everybody who's online, or this whole thing that we do called Christianity, please listen to me. It doesn't hinge on this book. It hinges on one event. And don't misunderstand me here because this book is important. But this book, we could put it aside for a second. It hinges on one event. The one event is this. Jesus Christ died and resurrected. That's what this thing is all about. Is that if we can see that, if we could believe that, if we could prove that, this whole thing hinges on an event in time, not a book established by centuries and centuries of work. And again, I love the Bible. This Bible is a map and it is a guidebook for you. But it comes down to the person of Jesus. So what about Jesus? thing is, when it comes to Jesus, do your history. Is he who he said he was? Can you go back in time and look at different historians, Bible included, as well as different cultures? Could you go back and find Jesus in history? And I will tell you right now that if you decide to go on a journey like that, you are going to find eyewitnesses' accounts in the hundreds and hundreds of people who actually saw a dead Jesus get back up and show himself to many people. History will prove that Jesus is who he said he is. In fact, Jesus wants to double down on that in John chapter 14, verses 6, where he makes the words that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. How much of an intolerant statement can we get than this one? Yet Jesus says it. Why? Because he knows who he is. He is the Son of God. He is the King of the world. And he is going to bet on himself every single time because he's the risen Savior. This is who Jesus is. You want to know another thing why I love Jesus so much? 
especially in a world that represents and tries to give us so many gods, is that this is the only faith expression in our world where somebody gave you something. Like Jesus gave his life for you, died for you. Every other faith will demand something from you. They want to have something that comes from your life to them. But Jesus says, I just want you to come as you are. I laid my life down for you. And in my love and grace and mercy, I will walk you through even when you have your own gods and your own idols that you keep still living with and getting into bed with, I will still be a God full of love. And I love that about Jesus. See, Babylon is going to tell you that there are other ways to God. Spirits. He's going to talk to you about nature. He's going to talk to you about a higher consciousness that is within you. Buddha, Allah, I could go on and on and on, but Jesus makes the statement, I am it. I am the way to God. Take it or leave it. Choice is yours. We haven't even talked about idols yet. <laughs> I mean, then idols. I mean, Exodus chapter 20, God says, you shall have no other gods, and then you shall have no other idols. What's an idol? Anything that you come to rely on for some blessing or help or guidance in the place of a wholehearted reliance on the true and living God. Truth be told, I know idols really well in my life. I've placed some things, and that definition screams me sometimes. I'm not proud to say that. I'm just showing you the reality of it. But do you know idols? Do you have something in your life that relies on rather than God? Bruce Ellis Benson says this, not only are we capable of creating idols and worshiping them, we are likewise capable of being almost or completely blind to their existence. Our recognition of idols for what they are is often selective how do I live in Babylon when I've got all of these gods and idols that are running rampant everywhere? And I believe that in order for you and I to thrive in Babylon, we have to return to what I had mentioned earlier of redemptive participation. It is time for us as a people to understand that we believe and we say certain things and it is time to walk into that practice as well. What I mean by that is a lot of us have our beliefs over here that Jesus is the Son of God, died and rose again, and he's coming back one day for us, to which many of us would be like, yes, hallelujah, amen, preach it. And then when it comes to that orthodoxy, we come over here to orthopraxy, and we forget that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Oh, I love him. I know he is who he said he is, but man, my life, I'm a, it's not good. Like, how are you treating your spouse? How are you treating your friends, schoolmates, workmates, neighbors? How about that irritating boss or employee that you work with? You got one of those? Put up your hands. But if you're a pastor, don't put up your hand in this place, right? <laughs> Just don't do it. <laughs> but our praxy has to come back into play, and redemptive participation is where it's at. Remember I said God is within the culture, and he wants you. He wants you to orthopraxy. He wants you to be the redemptive participation of redeeming a culture that is far from God, who are looking to gods and idols everywhere. He says, bring it back home. John Tyson, who I quoted moments ago, also said this. We have often dismissed Jesus' command to love as a cliche, but 1 Corinthians 13 could not be more clear. If we do not get love right, nothing else matters. Yet instead of focusing on love, we keep seeking a more sophisticated influence strategy ouch. It's about love. 
We got to love people. This world needs to see a genuine love that is founded in the person of Jesus Christ who crossed every single barrier to get every single lost person, broken person, and hurting person. Jesus loves you, and he wants you to be the participation of that redemption story. Amen? I love that today. The second thing that I'm going to pull out of the text is technology. Daniel was forced to learn Babylon with his friends. Today, that is through technology. And I believe that uh, one click away, you can have all the information in the palm of your hand. Yes? You've probably experienced this. You think you're an expert. You're a know-it-all. Thank you, Google, for everything. David Kinnaman, who is a research and communications leader in our world, says that our screens disciple us. Would you agree with that statement? I think many of us would. Our screens. These little devices that we've got. And, and perhaps we could put in brackets around this little screen the thing that I just talked about in Doctrination Point 1. Idol. You ever felt that before? Is this an idol to you? You know how this little device works, right? I'm going to put it right here. And I'm over here. I'm having a good conversation with Pastor Tyson. Oh, it's great. And all of a sudden, I hear this vibration or this buzz. And what happens? You don't matter to me anymore because, oh, something's going on over here. You're in a dark room, right? And all of a sudden, this thing lights up like Christmas morning. And all of a sudden, you're like, whew. And our attention is turned over here. This is all I'm saying, is that this is a drug-induced mechanism. And our screens are, our technology is. It's a very powerful tool. And um, the thing I think about that is that... Um, Oh, my son just texted me. That's neat. All right. Thanks, buddy. I love it. You're grounded, but I mean, I love you. So uh, I'm <laughs> just kidding. I can't ground him. Anyway, the, here's the deal. Evil, evil is one click away. And you want to know who knows that best? Satan. He knows full well that evil is just one click away for many of us. Do you know that every time you click on certain things, what this little device is doing uh, through its AI uh, is, is creating an algorithm for you? And it is beginning to pull into things that you are liking, maybe disliking, it's beginning to talk to you, and it begins to build a foundation. Like, although we just sang about Christ alone as our cornerstone and our foundation, you should see the foundation that AI is putting onto your life. And what happens there is that AI begins to start sending you things in this algorithm, and it creates what we would call a confirmation bias. So you're no longer listening to other options. You are stone cold set on just your way of thinking, which I think sometimes is a very dangerous place for us to be in. And yet here we are with this confirmation bias. If you're going to thrive in Babylon when it comes to technology, let me ask you a question. What are the boundaries or the restrictions that you are placing around your screens? How dare you tell me I can't watch my Netflix or play on my ticky-talky or things like that? <laughs> That's my name for it. I love it. It drives my children nuts, but the ticky-talky speaks. Can I get you for a moment to be honest with yourself? I think indoctrination in technology is the enemy's close to number one tool probably in this culture today. I do believe that. So I'm asking you today, do your screens disciple you? Or are you allowing the person of Jesus Christ to do that instead? Food for thought. The third thing 
I'm going to move quickly here, is consumption. I think that we are indoctrinated by the things that we consume. You could see the parallel between this and technology, although I separated it for this reason. Are you aware of the worldviews behind some of the things that you think? Not just saying, oh, I believe this because this is what, again, dot, dot, dot said to me, but are you aware of the worldview behind it? I'm curious today as to what is seeping into our lives. So let me um, challenge some of the consumption that is happening in our culture. Let's talk about your sexuality for a second. Our nation is in a very dangerous place uh, when it comes to sexuality. And I know many Christians want to be like, oh, pastor, you talk about that. You know, you talk about homosexuality right now and give it. Listen, do you know what Jesus tells me to do? Even if there is a homosexual lifestyle present, love the person. It's called redemptive participation. Your job is not to fix anybody. That's God's alone. He asks you to love them. Well, I don't want to touch. I don't care. You know what we don't do? We don't talk about our heterosexuality. The fact that you love your lust and your porn. Or the fact that you're in an adulterous affair. We don't want to talk about that because let's just pick on the other person. Listen, sexuality is one of those places of consumption that has become messy in our world. But guess what? Jesus has a lot to say about that. And he has an approach as to what we could do with that. Identity. Man, this is another one in our culture. I am grieving in my spirit with the identity conversation that is in Canada right now. We've got people believing they could be anything they want at any point they want. I've read stories, silly as they are, of a grown man who wants to identify as an eight-year-old girl. And he can like, we are consuming narratives here that are contrary to the identity that Jesus Christ sees in the humankind. And we have consumed it. It's why I ask you, what's the worldview behind it? I mean, I was joking earlier in, in a little bit of way, but I, I know I've had conversations with my own kids. What's your source? TikTok. Oh, dear God. And it's like, what are we listening to that is forming who we are as a people? Daniel and his friends were told to eat the king's food. Talk about consumption in a literal context. I want you to eat the king's food, but they knew that that was wrong. Guess what? You need to eat as well. Are you excited for lunch pretty soon? I am, but you need to eat as well. You want to know what I know as well? Culture knows that you need to eat. And so it's going to send you things for your spiritual consumption that are killing you, that are destroying us together, I'm asking you today, quit eating junk food. Start getting healthy again with what you consume. To thrive in Babylon, the way that we can combat this consumption is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be transformed by the way you think, for this will be your spiritual act of worship. Some of you are consuming lies, and they are unnecessary. The enemy has a foothold and yet I know that to thrive in Babylon, I could say no to the culture and to the enemy that's trying to sell me things because I, I land myself on the word of God and what Jesus Christ has to say. We need to get back to the voice of Jesus and not culture. Amen. We just have to. And the last thing that I'm going to use today is cultural shaming. I mentioned a quote earlier where you can say that you're a Christian, but when you stand up, for some of the situations that I just spoke about, you feel the cultural shame, yes? Have you experienced this before? It's hard, actually. 
But Daniel and his friends experienced this as well. I mean, we saw that they were silenced when they stood up for certain opinions from God. It also shows us that in Daniel's identity, his name was changed. How's that for a slap in the face? I mean, everything about him was changed. And I love what Dr. David Jeremiah says about this idea and cultural shaming. But it says that mind control begins with the young. By destroying their beliefs and indoctrinating them into a counterculture, the ruling forces of evil can capture a generation for their purposes. You want to know why King Nebuchadnezzar took the best of the best? Because he could influence their minds. He could change them. Remember last week how I also said to us is that our young generation, define yourself whatever you need to do, but our young generation today, they love Babylon because it's comfortable. It's got a lot of the toys, bells and whistles, and it's great to be here. But I, I love this point that mind control begins with the young. You want to know who the enemy is going after today? It's our kids, it's our teenagers, it's our young adults. And us older people, we're not excluded from that. He'll take you out too. But there's something that an enemy knows. So I'm going to shame you to your faith that has once been, maybe by your parents or your nation, I'm going to shame you to believe that you can love Jesus, but do not stand up to these things in our culture that are wrong. And I'm telling you, an enemy has come to play. And he will try to shame you, young person. Do not listen to the lie. Because God is for you. He has a better plan for you. How do I thrive in Babylon, Sean? With cultural shaming. And this is where I take us back to the beginning. You form a creative minority. You form a stubborn group of people. I mean, look at the person beside you. Just think of them as stubborn. Could I form something with them today? When the culture is screaming at me, to listen to this and do this and to be that, can I form a stubborn cluster of relationship knowing what I believe and who I believe in? Remember I told you this is going to be risk laden today. It's not risk averse. But I love what John Newton and William Wilberforce did. I love what Daniel and his friends did. They walked into a culture that was screaming at them to do it one way and they said, no way, creative minority. And they changed their culture. God is not above nor below it. He's within it. And through redemptive participation, you and I have this beautiful invitation to show this world Jesus, who is the definition of perfect love. And Jesus wants you. Can you believe that today? He wants you. He made you for this moment, in this culture, in Babylon. I won't put you there, Sean. I just want you to influence. I want you to love my people. Can you do that? I think you can. And together, when we form that creative minority, man, God moves mountains. I'm excited to see some mountains moved on Vancouver Island. Yes? I hope you are too. Dr. David Jeremiah says one more thing. And I think this was Daniel and his friends. He said, I would rather be a captive in Babylon in the will of God than to be free in Jerusalem out of the will of God. <laughs> May we go to Babylon together. But in the will of God, God, I'm going to stand for truth and righteousness. I'm going to be orthopraxy and I'm going to love people because you told me to do it, even when it don't make sense and they're driving me, driving me nuts. I'm going to do it. And may we be caught in the will of God. 
for what he has for us. Amen? Let me pray for you. All eyes closed in this place today. Perhaps you are here in this space or you're online and maybe you've never had this relationship with Jesus. I know I mentioned that the first indoctrination that we listen to in our culture is gods and idols. And perhaps you have worshiped a different God. Perhaps you have idols and you're relying on them rather than the person of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you, Jesus Christ died for you, for your sin and your separation. He rose from the dead and he is a victorious king. And he wants that relationship with you, but it calls for a choice from you. And if you want that relationship with Jesus Christ today, it's as simple as saying, Jesus, I need you. I see you. I know what you've done for me. And I ask you to come be the Lord of my life, the God, capital G, of my life. And if that's you in this place today, you could do that by raising your hand, saying that prayer. If you're online, you could click that button. You could also text the word LIFE to 250-478-7113. Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you. Take that step towards him today. For the rest of us in this room, I'm going to pray for you. This is what I'm asking. I gave you four areas of indoctrination today. I want you to pick one that you feel Jesus is asking you to work on right now. So ask him, what are the four? Is it gods and idols in my life? Is it my technology? Is it the things I'm consuming? Or is it the fact that I'm caught in social shaming and not standing on my truth? I don't know where you are, but this is what I'm gonna do. If you identify with the gods and idols part, and that is what you'd like prayer for today, will you just raise your hand right now? If that's you, gods or idols in this room today, okay? Second, maybe technology is the one that you'd like prayer for today. If that's you, will you raise your hands in this place? Yeah, hands in this place. Number three, it's about consuming. If that's you today, will you raise your hands? Because we're gonna pray to those indoctrinations. And four, the cultural shaming. If that's your story today, will you raise your hands? Yeah. We all identify in some way today. So Jesus, I pray for my friends today because we know that we've got a father of lies coming against us, but you are the father of all truth. So I pray for my friends today, whether they are wrestling with the gods and the idols, if they're wrestling through their technology, the consumption, or the cultural shaming. The most important thing today is speak hope and life. You love them. You're not done with them. Yeah, our, 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 eye, our eyesight has maybe been off of you, but correct that today in this special moment in your presence. And I pray that you will put that kick back into their step, that as they walk into this week, they will know that you are with them. And I pray for all of us together that we would be a, a community that forms creative minority with redemptive participation. This culture needs you. And you have placed us here intentionally and specifically. So may we go influence. And may we know that the power of God is on our side. And you're moving things even when I can't see it. But I give you thanks that you're up to something in Canada. You're shaking the ground. And you're going to use your people for it. So give us a fantastic week. Help us to run in creative minority and help us to give you glory in it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Church, we love you. We hope that you have a fantastic week. Go with Creative Minority Day. If you are brand new to us today, will you go see Pastor Tyson and James in the Welcome Center? We'd love to say hi to you and get to know you a little bit more. But go have a fantastic week. 
in redemptive participation. We'll see you next week.